Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From building a well-balanced college list and developing a payment strategy to creating a high school plan and more. Each episode will help guide your family through various steps of the process. Enjoy the show. Happy New Year and welcome to getting in a college coach tw- college coach conversation. Okay. So my resolution was to not flub any intros in the radio show this year and it is the first 10 seconds of the first show of 2024 and I've already messed up. Let's start that again. Happy New Year. Welcome to getting in a college coach conversation. Uh, I'm your host, Ian Fisher, and we've got a great show today for you as we start talking about 2024. We're going to have a conversation with an, a recruiter who works in, in the employment space to talk a little bit about what seniors in college might be thinking about as they're starting to enter the workforce. And we'll have a conversation on the cascading effect of taking student loans, which I think will be really helpful for you parents of high school seniors who are starting to think about what kind of financial aid package is going to be the best fit for your family as your student begins college in the fall. But of course, before the fall even comes around, seniors have moved into the space where they are no longer submitting applications, but are now starting to receive decisions. And we want to talk a little bit about what those decisions look like and how they might come into question. This is also known as the segment of the show where Tova and I, Tova Javits is joining us today, try and scare you seniors into good behavior. We want to scare the senioritis out of you. So Tova, welcome back to the show. You are a great guest. We're delighted to have you. It's 2024. How's your new year? Uh, Better than yours so far. I am more than 10 (laughs) seconds in and I have yet to flub my... That's right. You made it for for the whole first minute without making any mistakes. Yeah. um, I don't know about you, but I was told this segment was going to be called Tova Scare- Scares the Seniors. So I'd like to make sure that that gets put into the title. Tova Scares the Seniors. And I want to be a part of that as well, um, because I, you know, I think that a, a good scaring is in order. We don't want students to get senioritis, but there's a really pragmatic reason for this. And I want to unpack a, a couple of different kind of admission situations. But let's let's first just sort of set the stage, right? You're a senior. You've applied to college. You've applied maybe early action or early decision in November. Maybe you've applied regular decision here by the new year. If you applied early, you might have already received a decision. If you applied to a regular decision round, those decisions might be coming in February or March, close to April 1st. Now, a lot of students start to get concerned in some cases about what might happen to a decision that they already have in hand. And so I'd love for you to just start with our listeners to explain what is the commitment on the part of a college when they make an offer of admission to a student. They send them that acceptance letter. They might have a financial aid award that's included in that um, letter. What's the commitment that the college is making when they send that out to their applicants? So while you were chatting... I just pulled up an email from a parent that I got of an admitted student through early decision. They've been celebrating for the last couple of weeks. And over winter break, it came up this very conversation about the commitment that the college has made. And I'm so glad you phrased it that way because I wanted to get the language from the offer letter of admission that the school Mm -hmm. sent this student. And they, I will read it to get it correct. Continued academic achievement commensurate with my performance thus far. Basically, the offer of admission, it's contingent on the student continuing 
what they have demonstrated to this point. And they're saying, hey, this offer of admission is only good if you continue to do what you've been doing thus far to this point. And that's really all the school is beholden to. If you hold up your end of the bargain, they'll hold up their end of the bargain. But it is a contingent offer on continuing your progress and actually graduating. That's part of it as well. That part maybe needs to be explicitly stated, depending how badly we need to scare these students. You do need to graduate. Uh, that is that is certainly the minimum bar that you need to clear. And I think that that's something that would make your whole family quite proud. So do that. Absolutely. But what you're pointing to in terms of this contingent offer is partly a function of just space and time and physics, which is that admissions offers need to go out before students actually finish their high school careers in order for them to have a timely arrival of a new class in the fall. They can't do this after students have graduated. Right. And so this language is consistent at every institution that sends out an offer of admission. Um, You were at Barnard. I was at Reed. Did you ever have circumstances where, um, let me ask you this, actually. I'm going to ask it a different way. How do you know, as an admission officer, what's happening with the student, right? Their application has already been submitted and reviewed. So how do you know what's going on with a student um, in their senior year? Ian, don't you know, admission officers just know everything. We just know what clubs you're involved in just because we're admission officers. Uh, I swear some students really do think that. We don't know a thing until schools communicate it with us. Uh, The colleges are going to ask for one or two types of updates. Some schools want what's called a mid-year update. At the schools I worked at, none of us asked for one if we'd already admitted you. Uh, The other piece that all schools are going to want is a year-end final school transcript. So at the end of the year, when you graduate... Uh, your school is going to need to send a final high school transcript showing graduation, showing senior year grades. Uh, but again, some might ask for a mid-year update. Uh, most, not all maybe, will ask for a mid-year update if you're applying in the regular decision range. They might not look at it or so, but basically schools are going to want to see continued progress, whether it's end of semester or end of year. And it, it's, it is important to call in these these two separate groups, right? So students mm-hmm. who have applied early, they typically will have sent in an application by November 1st or 15th, and their first semester hasn't even com- com- right. completed before those admission offers go out. Um, and so colleges sometimes will check on the progress of students by calling counselors just to ask where students are, but usually those offers of admission are made without ever having seen senior year grades at all. Or at least not beyond first quarter grades. I will say two of the schools I worked at, we were pretty careful about getting first quarter. But you're right. We uh, at two of the other schools I worked at four, two, we never really checked senior year grades. And and the the second piece is those those first semester grades and and because of the timeline for regular decision review, you know, that's happening right now. That's happening between now and typically the middle of March when they start to release decisions. So first semester grades will have been completed. And we were in a position where we were very often consulting the mid-year report as an indication of that student's continued mm-hmm. excellence within their academic achievement. Um and and so I guess fall year is is over for most students. Um, what would you say students should do if they're in a position where things are starting to slip a little bit or they've noticed, maybe I've been a straight A student all up to my senior year, but I've pulled a couple of Bs in a couple of difficult classes this year. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm a student that's had a mixture of Bs and As. This is my first C. 
should students be proactive here? Should they let the mid-year report speak for itself? Like, what can you do for a regular decision student who has not yet been admitted or denied to a particular school? I'm glad you clarified because my answer would be different for a student who has already been admitted. I thought so. I thought thought it might be. For the student who has yet to be admitted, uh, and they, they are beginning to slip a little, it's happened, but they still have they still have some time. Uh, I would encourage that student to start this new semester or at least the resuming post 2024 uh, back in school with some renewed there with some real intention. Uh, check in with the teachers. Do you, are, why are your grades slipping? Do you have incomplete assignments because you've been procrastinating? Are you struggling with some content? It does still matter. Do make the effort to bring up those grades in a way that is reasonable. Yeah. Uh, in terms of calling attention to it, not unless you have some good news to follow it up with. <laughs> I don't know yeah. that I want to, or if you have some extenuating circumstances yeah. to explain. That's Absolutely, right. if you have extenuating circumstances to explain, ex- ex- circumstances to explain, go ahead and explain them. Otherwise, let your improvement speak, not calling out the slip that maybe all has begun to happen. That was, it sort of reminds me of when I was a teenager and I had like, you had really bad like blemish, uh, you know, you wake up and you got a pimple on your forehead and you're kind of like, should I walk in and just tell everybody like, Hey, I know I've got this pimple here. I want to acknowledge it's here. Just so you all know, I know it's like, typically that's not a good idea. Like you're calling more attention to it. Everybody can see it. Right. So if you have a C for the first time ever, you don't need to write a letter that says, I want you to know that I have a C and I know that I have a C. They know also that you have a C. You There's not anything else that out. you can do. Um, and you also but, don't need to say it's because I have a really hard teacher. Like, Right, exactly. But if you were ill, if there was a family mm-hmm. illness, if there was you know extended absence for some reason, something that is outside of your control, which doesn't include the teacher, that is something that you might provide some explanation right. for. And I think, Tova, in this case, I would tell a student, hey, talk to your guidance counselor who's putting your that mid-year counselor, report together because be they the can help person. to provide this explanation. Absolutely. That it's a, is always best coming from it, the school counselor. Yeah, because it's a little bit more, it's a little more validated, trusted, validated yeah. verified. Verified, verified. Something like yeah. that. Corroborated. Uh, corroborated is perfect. That's the best word. So that's something for students to look into. Now, you pointed out that there may be a distinction here between a regular decision applicant and an early decision or an early action admit. Yeah. Right? So a student who's already been admitted to a school gets their first semester grades back, and those grades are not up to the standard that that student has already been showing. Right. Now what? Are you proactive in these circumstances? And what does your messaging look like with schools in this case? I mean, you said I'm supposed to scare the students, but but can I be honest? You can be honest. Yeah, they're fine. They're good. Are we talking about a few Bs and like, you know, mostly A's and oh no, they're first C ever, but they've otherwise been, uh, they've one C. Or are we talking about a student who has severe senioritis and got four C's and one D and is maybe in danger of failing something like, which, how extreme are we talking here? I think, um, well, let's start, let's talk about both of them. Let's start with just a student that's seen a little slip up. It's the first time they're taking some challenging classes. Maybe it's calculus for the first time and it's, it's thrown a wrench into their typical high level of performance. I think these are the students that tend to worry the most. I think they get a couple of B's. And and I don't want to let them panic any longer than they've needed to at this point. Like they're fine. And in my 10 years on that side of the decision-making desk, never have we ever 
rescinded an offer of admission because of a few Bs or a C. We just—I don't want to say that it was expected, but it was understood. And I would tell that student, "You're fine. Hey, stop the stop the bleed, if we will, or yeah. find the issues, turn it around a little bit, try and apply yourself a little bit more. See if you can't bring that C up to a B minus and that other B back up to an A minus." You're yeah. fine. You're still going to college. The, the college isn't going to sort of take any action that isn't so far off of what your continued academic achievement looked like previously. You're I fine. I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, what about a student that really has fallen off a cliff? Yeah. We're going from straight A's to B's and C's. You know, two or three B's, two or three C's, something that's a little bit more pronounced. Yeah. I mean, I think if there's a D in there, we're really in some trouble because you know, if you look at the University of California system, a lot of other institutions, that's not even a passing grade. So that doesn't qualify as getting credit for that class. What should a student do in these circumstances? And is there any way to stem the bleeding with a school where they've already gotten in or Mm -hmm. change a strategic approach in terms of where else they might apply? Oh, goodness. So they're not waiting for other decisions. They've either been admitted everywhere through early action or early decision. If it's early decision, they're they're bound. They're not going to start applying to other schools at that point, although they might right. want to reach out and confirm their offer is still good or that they don't need to take any action, assuming that they will turn it around for the second half of the year. Uh, I'd say worst case scenario I ever saw at the schools I worked at in that situation, assuming the student was still going to graduate and they were still going to eventually pass everything, uh, we would maybe start that student on academic probation. They, mm. they, we weren't going to take away their offer of admission. They're still coming. But we'd say, okay, your first semester, you are on academic probation, meaning you have to maintain a higher level of GPA to continue to progress, to show, hey, I'm back on track. It was just a flip. And in that scenario, it's taken a little more seriously. I I would take it like a strong slap on the wrist. I got to get my act in in gear, but I still wouldn't panic. Um, I would though seriously down with those teachers where you're struggling and find out what you need to do to turn it around. That's right. I I do think that there are some situations where an offer can be rescinded. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes schools over-enrolled by the way. That's what I was going to say is that there are circumstances where a school may be over-enrolled, where they're saying, we've got a lot of students that we've admitted and a lot more have accepted these offers than we thought. Typically, this will play out a little bit more um, deeper into the spring as Mm -hmm. the yield starts to um, make sense. I think this was something that happened somewhat controversially a few years ago at UC Irvine, where they were really oversubscribed. And so they were very strict about students not being on the path that they had initially established in terms of revoking some offers of admission. So that's something that you never can predict as a student, and you really want to avoid this at all costs. Um, I think it's also something for students who are potentially waitlisted at schools. Mm -hmm. If those schools are going to a waitlist in May, they're going to be asking about your grades in the spring. And so there is even some relevance for those senior year grades to, to play out as well. I wanted to ask you something that occurred to me, you know, as we were planning this, this segment, performance is one thing, but sometimes there are circumstances where a student says, you know, I registered for this course, but I'm not going to take it anymore. Um, I've decided that I don't need the second semester of Spanish, or uh, I I don't actually want to continue with calculus for a second semester. It's not going to be my major area of study. What should a student do in these circumstances for both early schools where they've been offered admission 
and regular schools where they're currently applying. I do think that is something that needs to be communicated because that's part, it's, it's not just a flipping grade, it's a whole change in program. And the rigor of your senior year curriculum is such a big part of the conversation. And now you're changing that rigor. If, um, I, you know, I think we've uh, across our team hashed out different scenarios where we're sometimes splitting hairs as to how big of a change it is. I, I generally lean towards transparency, yeah. checking in with your school counselor and likely communicating that to the college, uh, getting some guidance from your school counselors to what is the right move if, change, if you are changing your schedule. And then I do think I, I'm of the mindset that needs to be communicated to the colleges. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, and I think it's good to establish a pattern of communication. This is your school, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is a place where you're going to be attending and you want to start on the right foot with the school. Um, I do remember from my time at Reed one year that a student showed up for orientation to register for classes. And before a student could register, they had to, had to share their final transcript with our admission office so we could verify that they'd completed all their credits and that they had graduated from high school. And a student showed up and had not done that. They'd essentially stopped high school. And we don't want to upset the apple cart when a student's celebrating the start of their college career, but you didn't graduate. We, 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 we can't let you register. And so that student was asked to leave. So, you know, there are extreme circumstances. I think what we would say is keep your house in order, make sure that you're continuing academic strength and let schools know if your plans change. Anything Sounds else? That, perfectly. Okay, cool. It didn't need to be 15 minutes then. Just. I mean, unless you really want me to scare them, I can tell you stories about offers of admissions that were rescinded based on behavior and academic dishonesty. Uh, but those, that's a different segment, I think. Don't do that either. That stuff is also bad. That's that's quite a bit worse. It's okay to struggle a little bit. It's yeah. We want to have good behavior, though. Um, yeah. All right, Tova, maybe we'll have you back uh, around Halloween to scare Ooh. the kids some more. Okay. Um, I or, see a series. Maybe next month. Yeah, it could be a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Anytime. Uh, When we come back, we will be talking to a a corporate recruiter who's going to tell us a little bit about what college seniors should be preparing. We're not going to scare you in this next segment. So uh, stick around. We'll be right back. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. For 25 years, families have trusted Bright Horizons College Coach to guide them through the college admissions process. With nearly all of our students getting into one of their top choice schools, it's no wonder why. Our experience is unmatched. As former admissions officers at top colleges and universities, we've read the essays, reviewed the applications, and made the admissions decisions. We know firsthand what colleges are looking for. Ready to meet our team? Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. In every college application, there's that moment of pause before a student hits send. Is this my best work? With Bright Horizons College Coach, your student will hit submit with confidence. We take the guesswork out of applying to college. Students get help with everything from essays, summer planning and visits, to testing strategy, merit aid, and more. As for our results, 100% of students have earned acceptances, nearly all to one of their top choice goals. Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? 
Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm joined in this next segment by Amanda Cutler, who is a recruiter, a senior recruiter at Morgan & Morgan in New York City. And she is also the sibling of one of our college coach experts. And I'm going to let all of you who are out there who like Easter eggs try and figure out who that person is. Uh, But Amanda, uh, excited to welcome you to the show and, and learn a little bit more about your role and your experience today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So we were just talking in between segments uh, about your transition from college to the workforce and how you sort of stumbled into something uh, that 20 years later became a career for you or or continues to be a career. Um, And that feels like a lot more students think about it being something that happens with intention, right? I graduate and then I choose the thing and then I go and pursue it. And you've had this opportunity to sort of see what that looks like as a recruiter who's worked on the staffing side and helped out with employment. What's something that you um, would change or do differently about, you know, coming out of college based on the information that you have now Um, Is there something that you would like to tell your younger self advice that you would give that would be helpful? Yeah, I mean, I think it's most importantly, it's okay to not have it all figured out. I would say that your first job is is most likely not going to be your last job. Um, And I think the way in order for you to figure it out, it's, you know, really getting an understanding of truly what you want to do. You know, I think years ago, I know that like my father had the same job for 30 years and it was very common in in that, you know, in that time. But um, but yeah, I mean, people are constantly moving, evolving with different areas, especially with like social media and all the connections. There's so many different opportunities for recent college grads to sort of pursue. So I think just to be super comfortable and know that um, it's okay um, to not know 100% what you want to do. It's your time to sort of get a feel of, of what's out there in the corporate world. Okay. And that's something that you would tell your younger self. And I wonder if as a recruiter, that's something that tends to demonstrate success for the students that you, or the graduates that you speak with, the young people who are entering the workforce. Do you find that there is some characteristic uh, uh, among those who are really successful in terms of openness to different kinds of opportunities, in terms of you know a willingness to try new things. How does that manifest in terms of um, their engagement in the job hunting process? Yeah, I mean, it is really important to be open and flexible. I think, especially as a recent college grad, you should, you know, no job is too big or too small. You should be taking every single interview. You should be networking. Um, There should be no time where you're saying no to anything. You Hmm. really have to actively get yourself out there and sort of pursue different different areas um, and just feel comfortable. I I don't think you're prepared for that when you graduate. 
graduate college of truly what you want to do. So I think I think I would definitely suggest, I mean, I consider recent college grads super like green. Um, and the only way you're going to figure out truly what you want to do is you know, get yourself out there, network, try to have connections with people in different industries uh, that might be able to provide you with additional information of what it's like for, you know, for their career path and what took them there and how they accomplished that. I Coming out of college myself, I don't think, I, you know, I happened to stumble upon admission as a part of uh, my undergraduate uh, career as an intern. And so I just found that pathway. But I think a lot of the stuff you're describing about being open to networking and saying yes to to opportunities and and having conversations is just not something that I was totally aware of when I was leaving school. Um, what are some things that students can do freshman, sophomore, junior year, even in advance of senior year, to start to put themselves in a position where they're creating those habits and getting those experiences that can then be helpful for them when they do enter the workforce later on? I think they should utilize um, their career centers that they have within their um, college. I think they should absolutely be attending any sort of career fair that is local or even a little bit further from where they're located, because having the opportunity to continue to talk to people that do interviews for a living will make them feel more comfortable. So, you know, Update your resume. You must, must in this day and age, intern. And your internship should really start, I would say, at least your junior year. I mean, you know, if you could do it in your sophomore year, I think internships are super important. Network through LinkedIn, network through um, social media. Make sure that you have something to send to people once you do connect and, and certainly follow up. One of the things that when I was leaving or when I was still in grad school, one of the things that we talked about often with our faculty is that that the .edu email address has this really great currency where people will respond to you and yeah. and say yes and do informational interviews. And once you graduate and you're a gmail.com or outlook.com, that people are much less willing to return your call. So I think that aligns a lot with this idea of get involved earlier on when you're still a student and still in that learning phase. Is that something that you that you see resonate as well? Um, you know, being a student, being in that position of a student versus someone who's graduated who's now a job seeker. I mean, I think it is just so incredibly different now than it was, you know, when I started the search and when so many people started the search because we didn't have access to social media. So the fact that you have so much at your fingertips with yeah. all these networking sites is really super in, important. My daughter, who now is a senior at, at college, I've sort of been guiding her and letting her know, utilize everything that your college has to offer, especially the alumni networks. To your point, yeah. when it's .edu, you're going to probably get more of a response, then you will, you know, Amanda Cutler at gmail.com. So, yeah. so try to set yourself up for as many connections, um, you know, so you are prepared for once you graduate to actively already have sort of a, a network in place. You mentioned earlier on that that recent college grads tend to be a little bit green. And I think I remember when I graduated from college feeling like, oh yeah, I'm ready to enter the workforce. And now I look back a little bit cringy in terms of like, you had no idea what it meant to be professional and like, what what are the things that you need to do in terms of showing up in the workforce in a, in a way that is commensurate with the expectations of your employer and your colleagues? What are some things that you notice that students really need to work on across the board consistently that would be advice that is helpful for, for students to start to think about so that their presentation is, is you know, top, top shelf? 
Well, um, it's interesting because of because of um, COVID, a lot of people have been so used to sort of working remotely, and that might not necessarily be another you know an option when they uh, graduate. It will be on site, so I think they have to set their expectations to understand it's extremely important to dress professionally. It's extremely important to double check your emails, double check your outreach, um, you know, make sure your resume is updated with any sort of leadership activities and make sure, you know, you're connecting with, with the right people. Um, you know, like you said, when I, when I graduated, it was a whole, a whole different world. So I think it's really, really important to, you know, talk about your, your activities and your volunteerism. And um, certainly again, the alumni network should be huge. Now, when students are starting to talk a little bit about their college experience, let's say they're in a space where they've gotten an interview or they're having a conversation with a recruiter, what are some of the things that you tend to be drawn to in terms of information students are sharing? And what are some of the things that students often talk about that you don't care as much about? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's important to kind of get a thorough understanding of who this person is and, and what they're truly looking for. Again, you know, to be as open and flexible and as honest and as humble as possible um, is really important. You know, I've dealt with recent college grads who are like, you know, I have a college degree. I'm not going to be answering someone's phones or I have a college degree. I'm not going to be, you know, folding T-shirts or, I, you know, I didn't get this degree because of this or this. I mean, it, it is just, you know, sometimes I really have to check myself because I've been doing this for so long. And every year I feel like it's the same um, group. They are just, you know, so naive. Like I said, so green. Um, you need to have that conversation. You need to jump on a Zoom with me, not from your bedroom, you know, talk to me behind, you know, sit at a desk, like, you know, keep the noises out. You have to remember you are no longer part of a culture that everyone is the same age and they're, it, you're, you're going to be interviewing with people who have been doing a profession for a very long time and they want to make sure that they're going to be hiring um, people who are responsible, who have integrity, who can hold themselves accountable and be professional in, in a corporate environment. Because I do think that primarily most of the roles will be, um, if not um, in office, 100 percent hybrid. So, yeah getting back to that, like get that out of mentality. Oh, I want to work from home because you haven't earned this right. You know, like if you're, if, if your office is telling you what you need to do or an interview is saying, you know, we're in office five days a week, I think it would be silly to not pursue something because I think it's also on the other end, it's also really important for these grads to have colleagues, you know, to, yes. to be able to connect yes. with people within an office. Like, you know, everyone thinks it's great to work remotely, but it could get lonely. And especially in, you know, with them just graduating, having colleagues is going to bring a whole new set of experience. Well, and you said your first job is not going to be your last job. And so yeah. when you start looking for new opportunities, you're going to be looking for testimonials from a manager or from a colleague who's going to speak to your talents and your ability to do your work. And when you're siloed, on your own, in a room, in your bedroom, working, you don't have that opportunity to impress your colleagues and to make an impact uh, in a noticeable way in the workforce. Yeah. And so I, I think a lot of younger people should be hungry to want to be in the same physical space as their colleagues because of that opportunity to show what they have to offer. Um, I also just like, as an aside, you know, most of our listeners, parents of high school students, your conversation about 
you know, not taking a meeting from your bedroom, from your bed, um, proper email etiquette. These are things that I try and drill into the students that I work with because it matters later on down the road. And so the earlier that you can start to practice good habits around email, around communication, I think the better positioned you are to handle these things the right way when it starts to be a little bit more impactful uh, for you. Um, one thing that I haven't heard you, and I do want to speak to this high school audience briefly. What about the institution where the student is coming from? I think that there's a lot of curiosity on the part of high school students and their parents about the meaningfulness of the the degree granting institution and how that might sell, set students up for success later on down the road. How does that work in your experience? And, and to what extent is the name brand of their college? A meaningful part of your assessment of that student's capability. So, um, so I think it really depends on the specific industry that you're looking to get into. I think there are some industries that are looking for um, higher academically alma mater, you know, graduates. I think that so if you're comparing, you know, a challenge, a, a really strong college opposed to a less strong college, um, you know, the financial companies are going to gear themselves definitely towards the students that have, you know, a a better uh, alma mater. I think that the um, tech field is really interested in super smart, you know, um, backgrounds and challenging courses. Um, You know, I think the more creative fields are a little bit more forgiving and, you know, might not necessarily be so focused on the schools that you graduated with. But I do think uh, coming from a stronger college will always give you an advantage over someone who hasn't gone to a college that's as academically highly ranked. However, um, I also don't want to see, you know, a college grad who graduated from, let's say, Harvard and has zero internships and can't hold uh, a conversation with me. I'd much rather see someone who might have gone to, you know, um, a lesser academically challenged school and have those internships and have that personality. And because I think it's, it's, it's important to have a combination of both. So, so I think that, yeah, it's really important depending on what um, trajectory you want to go to go through. Just to follow up on that, how does the institutional name kind of play out in your process? Is it about getting to the top of a stack of resumes? Is it about maybe a second look at a student who comes from uh, a more selective institution? Um, Is it something that comes through in conversation that you have? Is it all of the above? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, it, it's really hard to pinpoint one specific thing. It all depends on what type of role I am placing for, um, you know, and there are certain hiring managers that will only say they want, you know, um, from an Ivy or, or mm-hmm. give me specific um, kind of instructions on what to focus on. So, so, you know, it, it, it really, I can't really say a hundred percent. I would say maybe more so all of the above. I think for me, what's most important is to be able to have a conversation um, and making sure either the person has the experience or I feel that they are competent enough in order to take on um, the, this role. And I will say sometimes when you go to, you know, a high um a highly ranked school 
you know, sometimes they're so incredibly focused on schoolwork that they haven't learned the skills of actually, you know, being a person who can really adapt into different environments. Yeah. They are so yeah. black and white that they've lost touch with like sort of, you know, the personal aspect of the interviewing process. They're a brain on a stick. Exactly. Right? And, and you need a little bit more fleshed out personality because people want to work with other people who are interesting and engaging in addition to being smart. And I think yeah. that's that's a reason to continue to be involved beyond the pre-professional kind of networking opportunities, also to just get involved in clubs and organizations, to be involved in your community, to grow in that way, because that's going to catch the attention of someone like Amanda, who's going to say, I love talking to this person. This person right. is open and interesting and engaging. Um one final question I want to ask you before you go, since I have you, how important is LinkedIn these days? How much do recruiters bank on LinkedIn? Do they use LinkedIn? Um, is it something that students should really be thinking about developing as a part of their um, you know, uh, em employment strategy? 100%. I think LinkedIn um, is probably one of the most important networking tools. It is a Facebook for professionals. Mm -hmm. You know, it is a professional, it is truly a professional networking tool. I mean, it is so incredibly useful if you do use it correctly, because you could see so many connections that you might not have even known that you've had, but you have to remember to use it as a professional networking tool, not to throw my daughter under the bus, but she, um, she, put a put a picture she was getting her linkedin together she put a picture of herself she visited a friend in milan and she put a her picture was her like at a um a train station with sunglasses slick back hair and a leather jacket i i literally almost went into <laughs> convulsions like whoa that is not linkedin like yeah. linkedin you need to be professional i think it is so incredibly important because you know, typically we post jobs and um, we have applicant tracking systems where it'll be posted, whether it's on LinkedIn or indeed, and the candidates will apply. If it's a pretty popular company, there could be 10,000 applicants that are applying. So sometimes I'm going to do the reverse search where I'm going to be looking at the criteria that I need for someone. I will certainly try to get to the applicant tracking system, but you know, there are, there are times, especially in the recent college grad world, there's going to be so many. So, so absolutely make sure your LinkedIn is up to date. There are no typos. Um, your picture is strong. You know, you could say, you know, senior at Penn State University um, majoring in communications, like that is okay. You don't actually have to have a job in order to Put your, you know, your profile on LinkedIn, um, even like a Penn State University could draw the eye of individuals who are hiring. So I will say that is probably one of the most important things to have. That's great. I'm glad I asked. Yeah. I'm really glad that you came to join us today. This has been really awesome. And I think hopefully something that is helpful, not just for current college students, but I also think for high school students who are starting to think about the kind of professionalism that they need to show as they get into the workforce a half decade from now. Yeah. Um, so Amanda, thank you so much for being here, uh, accepting our invitation. We're really glad to have you. Absolutely. Thanks for, thanks for having me. It was, it was fun. Awesome. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, loans and the cascading effect of taking some big loan amounts. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. 
For 25 years, families have trusted Bright Horizons College Coach to guide them through the college admissions process. With nearly all of our students getting into one of their top choice schools, it's no wonder why. Our experience is unmatched. As former admissions officers at top colleges and universities, we've read the essays, reviewed the applications, and made the admissions decisions. We know firsthand what colleges are looking for. Ready to meet our team? Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. In every college application, there's that moment of pause before a student hits send. Is this my best work? With Bright Horizons College Coach, your student will hit submit with confidence. We take the guesswork out of applying to college. Students get help with everything from essays, summer planning and visits, to testing strategy, merit aid, and more. As for our results, 100% of students have earned acceptances, nearly all to one of their top choice goals. Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to the final segment of today's show where we talk a little bit about financial aid. And, and part of the reason that we're doing this now is because as the calendar flips from 2023 to 2024, families are starting to get admissions decisions back. And those decisions typically will include some sort of financial aid award. And typically a key component of that award is going to be loans. Um, loans are a big part of how uh, families pay for higher education these days. And we want to understand a little bit more, not just about what those loans are going to mean in the first year, but what's going to happen long-term for families that choose to borrow in order to pay for education. So this is not something that I know anything about, which is why we've got Michelle Smoley, my uh, colleague over in the college finance expert section, joining us for the show today. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Ian. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's nice to have you. So help me understand a little bit about what sort of brought forth this topic as something that we wanted to talk about for today. I know that there's just the natural cadence of the admissions and college finance cycle, but I think there's also something that um, you're noticing in terms of trends that might be relevant for families as they're thinking about borrowing. Right. Um, A lot of times, because we work with a lot of families on paying for college, but also repaying student loans. And in those student loan conversations, we are hearing from college graduates where parents maybe took out a bunch of federal student loans, and now they're passing them along to their students. Or students are not able to buy a car or a home. Um, they're foregoing those life changes like marriage and having children because of the student loan indebtedness. And a lot of times this time of year in our paying for college calls, we're hearing from families, if my child gets into A, B, or C school, I don't care what it costs, we'll borrow they're going to get, go to that institution. But then we also work with 
the mm. students and the adults afterwards, and even some of the parents afterwards. And they're dealing with literally hundreds of thousands of, of dollars in debt, especially if the parents are borrowing from multiple children. Yeah. And then these parents are foregoing retirement um, and having to pinch their pennies um, at an age where they really shouldn't be doing that from a financial perspective. So it's interesting because we just spoke with uh, in a great segment last segment about with a with a recruiter, and the first question that I asked her was you know advice that you as a recruiter would give to yourself when you graduated from college, but this sounds like a circumstance where you're really able to give advice to people who are considering borrowing that is informed by people who have borrowed in the past. You're connecting the experience of those who are currently deep in student loan debt with the experience of those who right now are just saying, it doesn't matter, you know, we can we can sort of pay for, for whatever. So I like that. I think that that's a really great parallel element of the segment. And I think it also speaks to, of course, the volume of our experience here uh, and the expertise that is, is developed as a result of that. Let's talk about student borrowers first. Uh, I think that that's, that's probably a little bit more uh, easy to understand, a little bit more um, you know, close to home, right? Because the student is the one that's going to school, so they're the one doing the, the borrowing. So help me understand some of the, the major effects that student loan debt will have after a student graduates, um, after the grace period perhaps has passed and they start making those repayments, what are some of the effects that people maybe don't anticipate? Sure. Undergraduate students can only borrow roughly twenty-seven dollars to $30,000 in the federal student loan program. In so, total? Not in per year, but in total? As an undergraduate in, in the federal loan program. Okay. So, if you're looking at repayment on 30000 in debt as an undergrad, your monthly payment is roughly going to be around $300 a month. Okay. That's not typically where the issue lies. The issue lies when students and parents borrow above and beyond those amounts, whether the student goes on to grad school and then the federal loan limits, quite honestly, there are none. Yeah. There are no aggregate student loan limits. They went away in 2013, I believe it was. Um, there's also no borrowing limits from the federal perspective on the parent side. And a lot of times what we're seeing now is parents who are borrowing the federal parent loan, some of them think it's their students or their child's loan when in essence it is mm -hmm. not legally their debt. And we find that there are those family agreements where the parents are like, okay, I'm going to take on this additional $30,000, $40,000 a year in debt. But then when you graduate, you're going to have to repay that. So now the graduate isn't just repaying $30,000. They're repaying $150,000. I've talked to borrowers who have $200,000. And that's just for an undergrad degree. Um, and all of us on the team have heard it multiple times through the years. I should have just went to my four-year in-state school because they're not realizing the impact on their credit scores or their debt-to-income ratios that 
lenders will look at if they're trying to buy a car or a home and those types of adult situations that come up financially afterwards. And this is, you know, a conversation we have on the admission side is, is that's connected to this is often about feelings that there's a really divergent um, you know, real, real vast chasm in quality between those high, highly priced private schools and those public in-state universities. They're going to be much more affordable. They're still expensive, but they are more affordable. Um, and the reality is that a really talented student who's got their ducks in a row can be in great shape at either of those institutions. And maybe for a particular family, it's not worth stretching your yourself because of these later effects. And, you know, you might just be looking at the loans and saying, well, I can take out this much money, but, but what you're really putting your finger on is how down the road there are more long-term effects. One of the things that you shared with me was, you know, a lot of students are moving back in with their parents, right? And so one question is, would you rather go to private university and live on your, and move back in with your parents or go to a public university and maybe live on your own? Um, you know, if you put it in those terms, maybe students are thinking about it a little differently. And we do speak to borrowers who are in that scenario where they're like, I went to nursing school, I have my BSN, but I went to a private school. And now because of my student loan debt, I moved back home so I can pay off these loans in five years or maybe seven years instead of 10, 15 or 20. Yeah. So so what are we looking for if we're a student, right? How do we want to think about our debt Versus, and this is something that I know I've heard from you and your team many, many times, but I want to make sure that our listeners hear it. What's a good measuring stick for how we should think about our debt when we graduate? Sure. The rule of thumb really is a college graduate, regardless of whether it's undergrad or grad or professional school, they really should not be taking on more debt than what they're beginning annual salary is starting in their given profession or field of study. So, yeah. And I would say based on a conversation that we just had with uh, the recruiter, I would think you want to be also a little conservative about what you anticipate your starting salary to be. Every student might say, you know, I'm going to graduate, make $150,000 a year. Um, whether that is the reality, the recruiter was just speaking about how naive some students are about where they're going to be beginning within their particular career path. So um, be conservative in terms of your expectations there. Now, you also mentioned, and I think this is something that we don't often think about because student loans are something that always think about we attach to the student, these parent borrowing effects, um, right? There, There are these big, big effects that come later on. And, and it sounds like you're saying that the big issue is that there are not limits on what these loans look like. Is that right? That is right. So if parents are looking at borrowing from the federal direct loan program, there is a parent loan that is called the PLUS loan. And PLUS is actually an acronym that stands for the Parent Loan for Undergraduate Students. And parents can borrow up to the cost of attendance each year, uh, subtracting any other financial aid that their student child receives that year. So we're seeing significantly higher borrowing on the federal parent plus side because there are no limits. Hmm. And then when you couple that with oftentimes families have more than one child. And obviously, college is a multi-year experience. So 
I have recently spoken to a mom that has three children. One is finally in their senior year in college, and she has taken on over $300,000 in federal parent plus loans because she had three children. Wow. That's that's always something that I... I've got two kids and they're very close in age and something that we think about is, uh, okay, well, it's not just the tuition for one institution for one student. It's going to be simultaneous for, mm-hmm. for three years. They'll be overlapping and, and it'll be a total of five years that we're paying. And so it, it's a pretty significant um, financial burden. And if you just look at that one loan amount that you get in the financial aid award, it looks a lot more reasonable. But when you start to see them stacking, um, you got to think about the whole picture. Right, right. And because we kind of live in this buy now, pay later society, a lot of times it's I'm just going to sign on the master promissory note. I'll deal with it later. But then at some point in time, you do have to deal with that debt. And then if, for example, parents want to refinance their home, if they have an additional 150 300000 in Parent PLUS loans, or they co-signed on, on private education loans for their children, that's included in their debt-to-income ratios and could affect the interest rate they get if they get approved for the loan. And so there's a lot of implications um, in relation to significant borrowing. And just to reinforce that, a lot of, I think, there can be this assumption that it's a loan that I took out for my student's education, and so it is a student debt, but in fact, it is a parent debt. And so that's something that affects my buying power as a parent, affects my ability to get a loan as well. What are the the current um, parent plus loan rates uh, that we see? Um, Right now, for this upcoming academic year, they're little over 8% okay. and they have a 4.23% origination fee. Okay. So we're, the parent plus loans are always at a higher interest rate than the federal student loans. But again, the student loans have borrowing limits and, and oftentimes parents are not paying the interest or paying the principal when the student is in school. So then you see multiple years of interest being capitalized. And and that's where the loan balances can really start to get very significant. So in terms of what parents should be thinking about, right, we got that guidance for students and what Mm -hmm. they should be taking on. But how should parents be thinking about the loans that they're taking on, um, especially given that, that families can be, you know, many, many students in size? Right. Use some repayment calculators. I I really can't stress that enough for families. Um, Typically in the lending interest industry, most lenders are saying you don't want the student loan or the parent loan payments to be more than 10% of your discretionary income. So so that's a a good uh, rule of thumb. And again, if you have multiple children, I'm not saying you have to borrow for all of them, but many families do tend to try and keep it equal. And and so you do need to keep that into consideration since college is a multi-year expense. Okay. So tonight at dinner, I'll be talking to my 11 and 9-year-old about scholarships uh, and how to get... <laughs> 
scholarship. Uh, thanks a lot, Michelle. I know this is a big puzzle, and I think higher education is important. That's why we have listeners. That's why we do the job that we do. But I think it's really important for people to understand, with the costs being what they are, how taking on these loans can have these ripple effects down the road. So thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Thanks a Great. lot. Folks, we will be back again next week, continuing our shows for 2024. We've been doing this for a really long time now. I'm really glad to have you all aboard as as regular listeners. Uh, Our show next week will focus on building a college list, the excitement that comes with a college visit, and we'll talk about the simplified FAFSA rollout, simplified in air quotes. We're going to see how that's going and hear from our friends in college finance. Until then, have a wonderful week, and we look forward to being with you again next week. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation. New episodes drop every Thursday. The goal of this show is to demystify the college admissions process for families around the globe. To help with this mission, please leave a review and share with your friends. And to learn more about Bright Horizons College Coach, visit getintocollege.com.